Good morning, Awakening. Great to see you. You're new. Thrilled to have you. My name's Ryan. Um, we're in the middle of a series. Let me see if I can do this right. Yeah. Uh, called uh, Sacred Writings. We're actually finishing it up this morning and really excited. So if you haven't uh, been a part of this series at all, I encourage you to go to awakeningchurch.com uh, and you can check out the full series there. Uh, but this morning, I have a special guest, a friend, Dr. Charlie Self, who's going to be with us. At the end of our time, we're going to do Q&A. And so for some, you don't like to ask questions out loud. We'll have some runners, and I get that, and that's not your deal. That's fine. You can text me, and I'll give you my phone number right now. So if you want my phone number, um, I don't answer after 9 o'clock. So if you call, then I will be asleep. But other than that, uh, you can have my phone number. Here you go, 408-510-2964. And so if you want to text, yes, you can text in church. uh, And you can text me some questions along the way, maybe some things that uh, Dr. Self talks about that you would love to have further, kind of dive further into. Uh, Let me introduce him to you because he has been both friend and mentor to me, and I'm excited to share him with you. But Dr. Charlie Self is presently the professor of church history at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Charlie has been in professional post-secondary education since 1981. He's been an adjunct associate and visiting professor teaching over 50 courses in the Bible, history, philosophy, religion, and theology, both at, at Bethany University, Continental Theological Seminary in Brussels, George Fox University, William Jessup, and Northern California Bible College. Charlie has four earned degrees, a BA in history, uh, um, and majors honors in Renaissance, Reformation, and Colonial American history, a master's in history on the church and social change in Latin America. Um, he also has a PhD in modern European history with a foci in B- Belgian Protestantism. Didn't know if you knew that or not. Uh, and studies in virtue, ethics, and the Holocaust. He also has a master's in uh, philosophical and systematic theology uh, as well from Berkeley. So he is really smart at the end of the day. Charlie is the author of three books, uh, The Divine Dance, The Power of Faithful Focus, and Flourishing Churches and Communities. We have this book out at our welcome table, and so uh, he brought some along. And so if you want to pick that up at the end, that would be fantastic and support him and his ministry. And I think for $5, and uh, or you can give more, you can always give more, uh, you can have this book. It would be great. He's also a frequent guest uh, as the Dr. History on the KSFO 56DAM talk radio in San Francisco and participates in baits with skeptics, interfaith forums, and other venues that help build understanding. But most importantly, uh, Charlie has been married for 36 years to his beautiful bride, Kathleen. They have three adult kids, um, one of which that I've gotten to know quite well, Michael Self, who was around for some time before he went to go live in Belgium and now Colorado and everywhere else around the world. Um, Here's what I would invite you to do. This morning, we have the chance to get to sit, to learn, to be challenged, and to grow. Um, Charlie, for me, I've gotten to play basketball with him, sit at coffee. Uh, He has been an encouragement to me. Every time I'm around him, I want to love Jesus more. And I would invite you, take good notes, sit back, and, and just go, okay, God, what do you want for me? And would you speak to me? And would you do me a favor and give him a warm, awakening welcome?
Bueno. Good morning. It is a real delight to be with you, and uh, thank you, Pastor Ryan, for that um, just honoring introduction. Um, as best I can, I try to frame my, my life as a thank you to God, but I also want to frame this morning as a thank you to you. I want to thank you, Awakening, for welcoming my family and many of my friends and providing a great place of uh, solace, encouragement, ministry, and challenge. And uh, with your permission, as I bring God's word today and we share together, I'm going to use we. Can we be members together of his body? And uh, the, the subcommittee is debating whether I can be an honorary member here or not, but we'll see about that. Um, but more importantly, we're all under God's word today, and I want to address it that way so that uh, everything we share applies to all of us. Um, I love the name of Awakening. For me, it speaks of my own heart awakening to the already real presence of God. It's also a prayer. Would you like to see God do another awakening in our country? It's been almost 200 years. We've had mar marvelous moments of blessing and renewal, but it really has been since that 1740 to about 1830 period. It's been a long time since we had an awakening that spilled out into every domain of society. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what we pray for, we aspire to. And uh, by the way, we have a challenge, don't we? As we get into this whole topic of God's enduring word, and I'm going to share some of the wonderful realities about God's word and why we can trust it. But can I just share one of what, what I consider the 21st century challenge? And that is that we, are, we have confused data or data with knowledge. Our instant access to data is not the same thing as knowledge and wisdom. And so as we step into this study this morning and interact with each other, I want to I kind of keep that in mind. You know, there are a lot of battles about the Bible, and you've been well taught these past few weeks of its power and its impact and how to dig into it a little bit. But inside the church, Matthew 23, Jesus was just raking some religious leaders over the coals. He goes, you go over land or sea and you can make some converts twice the child of hell you are. Thank you so much. But he was saying, you know, there's a real danger of using the Bible for legalism, for a cult of conformity, for trying to hold on to whatever we think tradition may be. And, and some people have been very wounded by that and wounded by people using the Bible to try to control people. On the other hand, we have the opposite extreme, and that's people that want to reinvent Christianity for the third millennium. Let's have a smorgasbord of whatever little bit and piece. We, oh, we don't want those nasty bits of the Bible. We only want those bits of the Bible. And so, we so whether it is holding on to religious control or trying to reinvent the faith, there are a lot of battles for the Bible sometimes even inside the church. Now, we have people who are opponents of the gospel. In Peter's second epistle, he said, there's going, to be, there's going to come cynics that are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is your God with everything going on? And there are a lot of people whose attitudes are hostile. Sometimes they're just cynical, just dismissing it altogether. Uh, Kathy and I had the privilege of being missionaries in Belgium and parts of Western Europe in the early 1980s. And if I were to take you right now to Paris, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? 
Actually, it's kind of hot and sticky right now, but still, it's Paris, right? But if I were to take you to the Sorbonne University, and if they found out I was an evangelical Christian, if I was giving a lecture, I'd be laughed out of the room. That's past history for much of Western Europe. And for much of people who style themselves as intelligent, Christianity is part of the past, that primitive past that we're now overcoming. We also have people who want to subject Christianity to their own ideological lens. Conservativism or liberalism or capitalism or communism. By the way, just be suspicious of any word that ends with ism. Because it can take on a power of its own. And, and, and by the way, I'm not talking about politics this morning or economic theories or what the government should or shouldn't do. Those are all good debates to have in a, in a good environment. But rather, we can make the Bible captive to our own thinking. But sometimes people who object to the Bible are also coming from a point of, of woundedness. You know, we, we have difficult experiences, and I so appreciate in our time of worship that we can bring to God all of our suffering. But there are a lot of people with unanswered questions or with situations that make it a struggle to believe. When I was in Berkeley in seminary, I had a um, female seminary student, a friend in a class, and she said, I, I want to believe, but my pastor father beat me every day. And I'm trying to reconcile what the Bible says about God with what I experienced. And by the way, at that moment, all I could really do was cry. Can I give you some good news this morning? Jesus knows about unanswered questions. Jesus, God become human, on the cross asked why. And in that question, he took all of my unanswered questions. You see, no other God has wounds save the Savior that we've been worshiping. And perhaps you've been deeply wounded, in or out of church, just by life. I don't want to give you a simple palliative, but I can tell you that the God we are worshiping this morning knows what it is to experience that wound. And in him, in him, we can find tremendous peace. Sometimes people have honest questions. Um, They're asking about the goodness of God and some of the realities of our world, or there are difficult passages in Scripture that take a little bit of work to understand. So all kinds of things can come up. In fact, I have a friend who's pioneering a church in Berkeley. How many of you know the People's Republic of Berkeley is an interesting place to pioneer a church? And he, he teaches through the Bible, and they had two new people. This is a small church, about 25, 30 people. They had two new non-Christians that night, and he had to teach from Acts chapter 5 when God zapped Ananias and Sapphira for not giving their money. <laughs> and he had a choice to avoid it or to teach it. By the way, he taught it. One of them came to Christ over the next six months. By the way, don't worry about that passage. There's a good explanation. <laughs> Um, but God's word is is a word of enduring truth and transforming power. And I won't spend a long time here, but I want to remind us what we've been listening to and how we can be both encouraged and challenged. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. If I were retranslating it, I would say the grass withers, the flowers fall, even your Mercedes ends up in the recycling bin. 
but the word of our God endures forever. You see, the Bible says that the word of God is a treasure. We're invited in Proverbs chapter 2 to explore, to ponder, to think. And when the Bible speaks about wisdom, it's not talking about some kind of secret esoteric knowledge that only a few people can have. That's called a cult. And by the way, it's only 1995 to join. Folks, there are parts of the Bible we got to work at, and there is deeper and richer knowledge of truth, but the Bible is an open secret, Leslie Newbigin said. It's something for all to understand and receive. In fact, my friend in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, did a little test. One of my doctoral students is a pastor of a great church there. He said, what happens if we get the church memorizing scripture for the next six months? He had people come up, oh, I I don't know how to memorize. I'm not good at that, or I don't read that well. So he got people listening to the Bible, every translation. He got people reading it, memorizing. Over a six-month period, as God's word got inside, more people came to Christ, more people started to serve. God's word changes us. In Proverbs 2, it says, accept my words, store up my commands, turn your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding, call out for insight, cry aloud for understanding. So it takes some work. God actually invites us like he did in Genesis to cultivate the garden. By the way, read Genesis again. I don't know if you're aware of it. He put stuff in the ground to be mined. He put stuff in the ground for us to take care of. He invites us to really dig in. The Bible says the word of God is food for life. Now, you've all memorized Psalm 119, I hope. It's 176 verses all about the word of God. Oh, that my ways were established to obey your decrees. I will run the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I'm laid low in the dust. Revive me according to your word. Your word is my delight. There's purity. There's progress. Sometimes God's word also helps us to see life clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, St. Paul says, as we gaze upon Jesus Christ, we're transformed. As As we dig into who he is, because folks, we become and we start looking like whatever we look at the most. And the Bible changes our life. So let's dig in to the reliability and the history and some of the, some of the wonderful empirical data that will help you have even more confidence in God's word. Why do we have 66 books? Is there anything missing? Well, now I, I have to confess about my childhood. I learned to read by reading about Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Peanuts was my first book that I learned to read. It's where most of my original theology came from. And Charlie Brown said to a friend, he goes, you know what, Linus is going to have to go to school twice as long as everybody else to unlearn everything Lucy taught him. I want to unlearn a few things about the Bible. And I think it's really important. First of all, here's a myth that gets spread around twice a year at Barnes & Noble and every day at our universities. Jewish and Christian power brokers kept some books out because they threatened their power. Uh, I just wish, I mean, that's a nice, simple solution, except the way we got our Bible was a lot more gradual and a lot messier than that. Folks, the Bible we have has been attested to by Christians of every geography, location, time, and place, and it came about gradually, as I'll give, give you that gradual story. 
but no one group of cabal got together and said, this is in and this is out. Over time, God chose to give us the books that we have. Oh, here's the one. Anybody remember the Da Vinci Code? Tom Hanks' terrible haircut? I mean, you know. (laughs) Folks, it's a great novel, terrible history. Okay? Only 53 errors in his historic portion. Constantine united the church and state and the empire. Dun, 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 dun. The empire determined the Bible and forced the Trinity on people. Boy, I wish it were that simple. Folks, it was a mess for generations after Constantine. Christians were persecuted again and sometimes did the persecuting. Constantine didn't even get baptized till his deathbed. So get rid of that too. By the way, get rid of this idea that the whole Middle Ages could just be thrown out as the Dark Ages. That's some secular perspective of history. God has always had wonderful and broken people in every generation and every location. Okay? We're beautiful. We're broken. We love those monks and missionaries. We love some of those saints and sacrificial workers. We get... Folks, there was no Taliban in the Middle Ages. It's so important to understand that. And I didn't get a chance in the first service, but for a thousand years, Christianity made its way all the way from the Middle East to Japan on the Silk Road. So, folks, we have millions of sisters and brothers, though not the recipients of all the knowledge that we have, who love Jesus Christ. Well, what's another myth? Well, early Christians were arguing all the time on what book should be in or out, or or it's an untrustworthy transmission. You know, how can we trust things that people passed on? Well, you know, I wish, I wish God had just given us a book with golden tablets and special spectacles on a hill in New York. Oh, oh, that's the Book of Mormon. I'm sorry. Uh, Folks, he, you know why God didn't give us the original manuscripts to preserve? Because we would have worshipped them. See, we, we, don't, we love our Bible. It's infallible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's God-breathed. But it's God-breathed and infallible through real people in time and space over a thousand-year period of history. And God gave it to us in this way so that we could receive it, learn it, grow in it, but not worship it because he alone deserves our worship. So this is not a magic book. It's powerful. It's transformative. But it's not magic. It's so important to have that in mind. Jesus and the apostles loved God's word. Jesus in Luke chapter 24 recognized the law, the prophet, the writings, the whole Bible. In that case, he was a good Pharisee in that the Pharisees received the whole Bible while the Sadducees only received the books of Moses. The apostles recognized the whole of scripture, 2 Timothy. I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says the scriptures make you wise for salvation. And by the way, Uh, Those scriptures were the Hebrew or Old Testament scriptures. The early Christians received the consensus of the rabbis about the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus Christ himself helps us to get a grasp on what is and isn't important in the scriptures themselves. So let me share just some historical markers, just five or six markers in history that I think will help us understand how we got our Bible. By 400 years before Christ, the Hebrew scriptures of our Bible have been written and collected. By the year 200, 
BC or before Christ, or BCE if you want the secular designation, before the Common Era. Why is it called the Common Era? Well, somebody decided that was important. We have the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek, what's what's called the Septuagint translation. Here's what's interesting. When you read the New Testament writers, the Christian Scripture writers, and they quote the Old Testament, have you ever noticed it's sometimes a little bit different when you go back and look it up? In some cases, that's because they learned it in Greek. In other cases, they learned the original Aramaic or the Hebrew. And so you have... You have God's ancient people, Jewish believers, learning God's word in both written Hebrew and Aramaic and also in Greek. And that Greek language is the common language. Well, most of our New Testament is written between about 50 and 90 AD. So within a generation of our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection, we have all of our books of the Bible. And again, scholars who need to to write papers for each other and and help us as well debate on the exact timing and context of each of those books. But it's pretty remarkable that we have an authoritative written record of these events before 100 AD. Well, in the year 70 AD, the devastation, the great devastation of the destruction of the Jewish temple happened. And out of that destruction, the small amount of Jews left in 90 and 118 AD, they had some councils and said, these are the scriptures. They also rejected the Messiah as well. But they had a council that said, these are the scriptures. And by the way, the early church said, we agree with you. And so that Hebrew canon, as it were, by the way, they they did debate one book. They were trying to figure out why Song of Solomon was in there. Well, I know why, because God's an incurable romantic. But they, they debated about that a little bit. But these books were received. In the middle of the second century, Christianity was genuinely threatened by false teaching. A bunch of cultic, Gnostic kind of teachers emerged and began to select what scriptures they preferred. And here's something I want you to take home with you today. A lot of our official doctrine arises in reacting to bad doctrine. Remember, when you're reading St. Paul's letters, you're reading somebody else's mail, aren't you? So great ideas emerge in helping correct bad ones. And so by the end of the second century, most of the books of our Bible are received, of our New Testament, are received by the church. They're still debating a little bit, especially about Revelation, and we've been debating about Revelation ever since. But I want you to notice the date. Before 200, most lists of scriptures we would recognize. And then... Just to further encourage you, we have manuscripts of the New Testament as early as 110 AD. So within a generation of John passing away, his gospel's already in Egypt. This is some of the best historical data we can imagine. By the way, when those Dead Sea Scrolls were found after World War II, it proved that the transmission of the Hebrew Scriptures was fundamentally accurate for a thousand years. What an amazing historical validation. Well, in the early 4th century, we have a complete text of the Greek New Testament from Lucian of Antioch. And by the end of the 4th century, we have the entire church, Greek-speaking, 
Latin speaking, and then Coptic Assyrian churches of the East, we have every aspect of the church affirming the current books that we receive. And around 400, maybe a little bit later, more like 410, Jerome translates all of these into Latin, what we call the Vulgate translation. It becomes the authoritative translation all the way into the 16th century. And uh, Jerome put some of those extra apocryphal books in the back of it said they're useful for devotional reading, but they don't belong in the Bible. Now, some of our Roman Catholic friends in the 16th century, in reaction to the Reformation, they added back in the books like Maccabees and Ecclesiasticus because it reinforced some Roman Catholic doctrines. But all Christians agree in all places and at all times on the Bible that you have right now on your iPhone, your iPad. Some of you actually might even have a paperback or leather-bound one this morning. Anybody actually have a physical Bible? Hey, fantastic. Wow, I'm happy. Okay, true confession here. True confession. I, I, Ryan said I have five extra minutes in this service, but just going to give you a confession. I have a fantasy as a professor the electricity goes out, the internet goes down, and we're forced to use pencils, paper, and chalk. <laughs> I just, it's just my fantasy. I'm, I'm going to a support group for it. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> so, this is really, really important, folks, that we really get this history. I wish it weren't quite as elongated or a little bit messy, but what's amazing is the consensus. As Thomas Oden said, what's amazing is what all Christians at all times and all places have agreed upon. So, as we learn the Bible, let me give you some insights from John Wesley. As you study the Bible, Scripture is our supreme authority, but we need to bring our reason to it. We need, we need to listen to what others have said. Tradition isn't church law, it's having humility to say, hey, what Pastor Ryan said 10 years ago, maybe I can learn from, or what someone said 200 years ago I can learn from. That's what tradition means. And then we need to bring the work of the Spirit. We need to bring our faith to this as we try to learn it. By the way, how we feel matters, but the worst place to start a Bible study is, how do you feel about that verse? The best place is, what is it actually saying? And then how you feel becomes important. In fact, there was one student at Oklahoma Wesleyan who went to President Everett Piper, who's an acquaintance of mine, and he had preached a strong sermon on holiness and repentance. And the student went and said, you know, I'm uncomfortable here. I'm going I'm I'm to sue the school. You've made me uncomfortable. He said, well, I, it's not my fault. The Bible does that. By the way, that, have you ever noticed you can stay up all night reading a novel and you get sleepy when you open the Bible? And it's because you can't read very much of it before it begins to challenge us in our attitudes and our actions. So I want you to expect some battles with me, just a couple of final thoughts before we open for questions. First of all, I love Dorothy Sayers. She said, Christianity is a religion for adult minds. It, God wants us to grow. Paul said, be innocent like a child, but in your thinking, be an adult. It, the Bible, a, a child can wade, but an elephant can swim. Christianity has, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and rarely tried. You know, it's so interesting how often we want to remake God. That's called idolatry. And then as a result of a new God, we want to remake our moral standards. That's called immorality. And then after we've done that, we then want to go ahead and be in charge of life. And that leads to injustice. 
We want to read things into the Bible instead of letting the Bible inform us. Now, challenges come to us from the inside. Christians argue, Christians argue over things they can't know about. Can I just confess to you? Can we just stop that? We argue about predestination, and only God knows about that. And then we argue about the return of Jesus, which last time I checked, only He knows. And meanwhile, there's so much unarguable good to learn together. But with the help of God, we can have humble confidence. My word will not pass away, Jesus says. We can be people of hopeful realism, working for proximate justice, working to see an increase in kingdom influence. And we can have expectations and experiences with God. And God's goal isn't to give us just an ecstatic experience, but to transform our ethics. Not just to give us an encounter, but to transform our relationships. And then, most of all, what's most exciting is that God invites us to join his story. See, your story really matters. And by the way, some of you come with all different stories. Some of unbroken faithfulness with great Christian heritage, and others it's brand new or being renewed. And in either case, God invites you to say, let's reason together. Let's think about this together. Let me finish with this thought. If you need to complain, anybody need to complain sometimes? Read Psalm 73. 13 verses of nothing but complaint. Or to translate it simply, why does Tom Cruise have it so good and I'm in the dumps? The writer was upset. And then it says, till I entered the sanctuary of God and got an eternal perspective. By the way, just reverse the numbers if you want to know how to live while you still explore your deepest questions. Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good, even while you ask the questions. And so I'm looking forward with you to continuing to learn from the riches of God's word. What do you say we open up now and have some questions? That'd be okay? Pastor Ryan? Wonderful. Thank you. Um, all right. So we're going to ask some questions. Man, was that good or what? Gosh. And now I'm going to quiz you on how well you know history. No. In the year 400. No. <laughs> no, but we want to do this and really ask away because we come with questions. And I've heard it said, and I long for this to be the case, that, that church, and specifically Awakening, isn't just a place for you to find your answers, but to ask your question. Or you can just wrestle and be in that place, and it'd be a great, great uh, place for you to be and be safe. So I'm going to start with one that's been sent in, and some people have sent some things in, and then we'll just go to live Q&A as well, and so right after that. Uh, but someone wrote this. It said, if the Bible is God's love letter uh, to the world, why is there so much violence in it? Uh, that one resonated. <laughs> Someone's like, um, mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel the same way. Um, when you say the Bible is God's love letter, Love letters are one kind of genre, right? One kind of writing. Um, it is overall God's embrace of us. The Bible has, is a four-part drama. And let me just, if you're taking some notes, I think this will help you. The Bible begins with what ought to be with the original creation. Unfortunately, what ought to be is subverted and enters into a place of destruction with human sin. That's what is. Aren't you glad in Jesus Christ what can be can be different? And then one day, 
By the way, the Bible is a romantic comedy. It ends with a wedding. Right? We start in a beautiful paradise, have a few problems, we end with a wedding. Sorry, guys. Don't worry. It's also an action adventure, too. Um, and it's even sci-fi if you want to really have fun with it. But I'm very serious about these four things because what I, why I actually trust the Bible because it contains the violence. It looks at, honestly, the condition of, of the human condition. And God is still at work, and it's so important. There are limited moments where God is telling his people to execute judgment. But don't ever let the descriptions of either violence or oppression or sexism, don't let those descriptions become prescriptions. Because, by the way, I trust the Bible. Anybody like King David's Psalms? But don't follow him for being a parent. I mean, the drama of his household in 2 Kings would be an NC-17 HBO series today. Okay? That actually, because God's the only real hero, Pastor. Right. And so the, you know, we want to distinguish what you mean by violence, what kinds of situations. The other thing that's really important to remember is that you have multiple witnesses, even in the Bible of some events, to see things a little bit differently. And in a court of law, we would trust that more than simply a transcript that somebody has sanitized. So I actually find myself not, I'm not excusing the complexities, but I find myself trusting more with the fact that even the heroes of Scripture are presented for the flawed women and men that they are. Yeah. Now, if you, you hit on something really important that we miss a lot, description, prescription, description, simply describing what happened, right? I know it's... I just want to make sure we're all in. Prescription is prescribing how we should live. Does that make sense, everybody with me? And so oftentimes we wrestle and take things that you're saying are simply describing an event as God's prescription for what should have happened. Yeah, I don't recommend that uh, any of you who have a promise of God of a child take a concubine. There's no indication in God's promises to Abraham that he's supposed to do half of the stuff that he did. God was still at work. But the descriptions of what occurs in that soap opera are not the prescriptions. Um, and uh, so I think that I, 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 want to, I want us to keep that in our mind. Now, we can look at different instances. Let me give one other thing about violence that's really important and it's worth taking note of. There is no genocide in Scripture. Folks, that word gets thrown around. In Scripture, there are specific moments in which a particular town come under divine judgment. But even those who've had centuries to repent and didn't, that Israel was to drive out of the land during a moment of what we call a, a moment of, of, of taking over the promised land, most of the time it was drive out. It was not utterly destroyed. And by the way, if you keep reading the whole of Scripture, you find out they're supposed to welcome most of those people back as aliens and strangers. So it's, now, that doesn't make it simplistic. There's lots of depth there. This side of Jesus Christ, there is no chosen ethnicity. There is no chosen geography. There are probably events, prophetic events that include geography and include, by the way, thanks be to God, a great, wonderful harvest among his ancient people. But folks, Right now, God blesses any and all localities and peoples who come to Jesus Christ. That's a change. And so there's never a conquering for Jesus at the, at the end of a gun. Never. 
There may be in a fallen world the necessity of defensive war, but there is never. And by the way, if you read missions history, honestly, very rarely did Christianity advance itself at the end of a spear or gun. Very important. Christianity is not colonialism. The two get confused. Christianity is not conquest. In most of its history, those monks and missionaries were martyrs. In most of its history, it was resisted by powerful people. My wife's ancient ancestors are Vikings. The series on Netflix is horrific. Okay? As usual, the Christian has the doubts and the Vikings are wonderful. Folks, these folks conquered a lot. Ironically, they preferred the weather of France and settled down and became Christians. So it's really important that we look at the whole picture. I'm sorry, I took a little bit long on that oh, one. Sorry. But, yeah. All right, how about some live Q&A? Anybody courageous enough to step forward? We had some good questions in the first hour. You guys may all be ready for lunch, but we're ready for you. Go ahead, just lift up your hand. We've got a mic that will come to you. Yeah. Fantastic. So I've heard this idea of progressive revelation that authors of the Bible throughout time would learn more things about God. Do you then weigh certain things that are said later in Scripture more heavily? And early on, would you, knowing what you know about later on in time, have a different opinion maybe than what the author seems to word something? Or do you kind of take and weigh everything at every stage of, of history and say this is absolutely true in its entirety of the way that the author interpreted the event? Thank you. That's, that's really an important question. And the a short answer is the Bible itself tells you what's most important, what's enduring, and there is a progressive revelation that's finalized in Jesus Christ. He is God's final word, final speech, full and final revelation. Therefore, we won't see another cult or another church or another kind of faith post-resurrection, ascension, and session of our Lord. That said, the the... There's not so much, as there is in Islam with abrogation, the negation of prior commands by later ones, what we have in the Bible is a, is a transformation, what William Webb calls a progressive redemptive hermeneutic. And it's the expansion of God's grace from select. Remember, Abraham was called for the nations, right? And so what you actually discover is an expansive redemptive hermeneutic. And that's why... The Bible itself says that these things are enduring, these things are are not enduring. The sacrificial system, for example, it can teach us a lot about holiness, but it was a shadow, right? It was a preview of what was going to be fulfilled in Christ. Same with the other ceremonial laws. That said, we don't reject it as Scripture. God was still teaching his people. Descriptions, sociological descriptions, for example, have been transformed in Jesus Christ. Philemon asks his friend, I'm sorry, Paul asks his friend Philemon to receive back a runaway slave named Onesimus as a brother. By the way, Onesimus became bishop of Ephesus, became Philemon's boss. Um, I say that because that itself destroys the basis of chattel slavery. Now, does the Old Testament describe slavery? New Testament? Yes. Sociological realities are described but not prescribed. Um, whether it's the status of women, whether it's property, law, slavery. Now, people ask that about sexual ethics. Well, in Jesus Christ, is it all different and new? Well, we look to Jesus as the final authority, right? He reinforced the original creation ethic 
and the words of the Ten Commandments. So there are enduring moralities, even while there are progressive applications of divine truth. Micah 6.8, what's it all about? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Leviticus, what's it all about? Love God, love your neighbor. So the Bible itself says what's more important, but also in Christ, we have the full, we have the fulfillment of that progression. And it takes a little bit of work and Christians have to wrestle with that. And it's worth wrestling with. That's a great question. What else? Yeah, right here in the middle. Somebody. Thank you, by the way. I really appreciate that very much. I always wondered uh, if, if I heard this correctly, that the, the writers of the gospel who, who walked with Jesus, uh, maybe it was decades after Jesus uh, resurrected, that they then wrote up what are the gospels, and if, if that's correct. And I always wondered, why did they take so long to write that up? I mean, if, if we were there, we would be like every night, like, oh my gosh, I got to write this down, or where's my phone? I got to put it on the notes. <laughs> Because you see these things happening right before you. And, and the fact that they're quoting Jesus regularly, you know, how do they remember what he had said? Why did they wait so long to write this all up? Well, long is a relative term, so let me answer it four ways. First of all, Jesus was a rabbi and his followers were, first followers were Jewish. You memorized the master's teaching. Oral tradition was much more reliable. And I want to be careful how I say this, because this is how... This is how people learn. People didn't have pocket Pentateuchs. You know, you were lucky if your synagogue, no, I'm very serious. You were lucky if your synagogue had scrolls of the entire Hebrew scriptures. So um, people memorized. It would not be unusual, uh, probably, St. Paul had the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized and the commentaries on those scriptures. Secondly, the actual creation of the Gospels is within 30 to 35 years of the event, which isn't very long when you consider when you consider that these writers um, had to gather this in order to minister to their communities. So, you know, they're each writing in a context in which they wanted, Matthew was really trying to bring Jew and Gentile together, and especially perhaps during the Jewish Civil War, wants to make sure that people understand that. You know, Mark is the witness of Peter and his impending martyrdom or actual martyrdom. Mark may be early. Mark could be as early as the 50s. We have Irenaeus talking about a Hebrew or Aramaic translation of Gospels as early as the 40s. So these are, in written and oral form, you know, coming together in the first decades. But it's an oral, remember, preaching in the first generation meant the proclamation of Christ crucified and risen. And then you need to back that up with some of the teaching from the apostles, and then the Gospels become necessary, especially as the first generation dies. As long as you have hundreds of living witnesses, there's less of a need than when you're watching the first generation either be martyred or simply pass away. And that's probably in the 60s what necessitated these Gospels coming together. On a historical note, that is fast. We're so used to information being instant. That's really fast historically. So thanks for the question. Yeah, something you mentioned earlier, not this service, but last, was talking about the manuscript evidence, because yeah. I think that ties in really well yeah. here, because what we demand of the Bible and expect of the Bible as far as its reliability yeah. it far outweighs what we uh, demand or expect of any other ancient writer or writing. Anybody heard of Shakespeare or endured Shakespeare? <laughs> we, we have Shakespeare manuscripts, and people love to debate 
is it really him or not? Um, Socrates, real person in history, but we only know him through Plato, Xenophon, others. But we don't doubt that he may have said or did some of these things on very scanty actual evidence. Our New Testament manuscripts begin about 110. They explode in the late second, and actually in the third and fourth centuries. They really explode, and then we have many more. So we have thousands for both Old and New Testament. It's The Bible is really if not the, one of the best attested ancient books in terms of just total data around it. But it will never be enough for the people who don't want to submit to the God of the Bible. If, you're, if, if you don't want to hear the message, you will always find a way to, to, to demand one more answer. But it, And I, I'm not exaggerating here in terms of just total volume of manuscripts, especially in the first eight centuries. Um, that doesn't prove that there aren't mistakes or difficulties. What's really amazing is we can pretty well account for 98 to 99 percent of the New Testament, including all the variations, and about 96 to 97 percent of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And those Dead Sea Scrolls were just amazing because they give us a glimpse of of the century or two before Christ and during the time of Christ, but they also give us a glimpse of the accurate transmission of the scriptures. It's reliable the question is, will we be after we've read it? That's we have time for one more. Yeah. Be, be right, right here in the back. I kind of struggle with um, some of the writings about women's role in the church. Yeah. And specifically during services. How do you kind of decide what's prescribed and what's kind of just culturally described? That's really good. And, and I, I want to preface this with that sincere Christians, sincere Christians have differences. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not even going to give you my opinion, but let me lay out a way to struggle more equitably and come to what I think will be the best solutions. Apart from those cultic, traditional legalists I spoke about, Galatians 3.28 tells us that on a fundamental foundational level through Jesus Christ, everyone has full access to all the blessings and graces of God. Can we agree? By the way, and Jesus demonstrated this, especially in the Gospel of Luke and especially in the book of Acts. Luke is very, very deliberate in making sure we see women and men together advancing the gospel, receiving the gospel. So on a fundamental level, on a field, on another fundamental level, Ephesians tells us that in the marriage relationship, it's mutuality and equality. If you read the verses before Ephesians 5.22, and if you read 5.33 carefully, you find out that what a woman's submission may or may not be is rooted in respect, and what a husband's love must be is rooted in humility. Where the difference lies is in a couple of texts like 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll come to that in a minute. Anybody heard in Corinthians where it says women are supposed to be silent? Okay, first of all, there's a problem. Back in chapter 11, he said, when you're prophesying, sisters, do it this way. So whatever Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 14, it's not shutting you up. Okay, The actual manuscript evidence of there has different statements all over the place. And the best we've come up with from 1 Corinthians is that Paul was dealing with a localized situation of people being, of interrupting or in some cases bringing chaos to the services. Because back in chapter 11, he has men and women vocally participating. What you enjoyed this morning. Did you enjoy worship this morning? Can we just give the worship team a a round? Okay. Okay. 
So what you enjoyed this morning were sisters and brothers, right? Vocally proclaiming the goodness of God, exercising their gifts. Are we okay so far? The only other text that we debate on, and you can just line up the manuscripts on this, is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in some evangelical churches, it's felt that in certain roles of the church, they were designed for men, not women. What I, I don't want to get into the weeds on that. I'll, I'll give you what I think is a way to think about it. When there is debate, I like to lean toward the liberating hermeneutic of Scripture as opposed to the restrictive hermeneutic. Others are concerned. And here's the, the key question is obedience to the Scripture. And I want you to hear this not a cultural norm. And let me, let me tell you, biology is a gift from God, but gender roles are culturally conditioned. So God originally created male and female, both as humans with work to do and differentiated in order that the next generations produced and all the wonderful being of God could be expressed. But what we, that, that's, that's God's design. But how it works itself out in a culture, we have actually imposed Ameri- you know, 1950 American culture sometimes on Scripture. And we've got to be very careful. So remember, whether it's sexual ethics or biology or the Creator's design, thank God for the common humanity that we share and the difference of male and female. The, the, and by the way, most, most believers who love the Scripture, it's really close here in terms of a couple of specific roles that men or women can serve. What I want us to do is have the most liberating, redemptive hermeneutic we can have. And I want to say this so carefully. My sisters, if you are single, my brothers, if you are single, you are not incomplete. You are right now an icon of the coming kingdom of God because when Jesus returns and we meet him, we are married to him and no longer married in the biological sense. By the way, we're going to have bodies and do good work, but we are his. And therefore, you're not incomplete if you're single. By the way, if you're married, can you thank God for that? You are a demonstration, a preview of a little taste of what that will be like, but you are neither superior nor inferior. For 1,500 years, the church said the single state is better, and then Martin Luther married a former nun. Now we're suspicious of anybody who's not married. Folks, it's good to be human, and it's good to be male or female but it's good to make sure that the roles we fill and the work we do is biblically informed and not culturally oppressive. I don't see any restrictions in Scripture, in or out of the church, to what women can do according to the call of God. I have wonderful sisters and brothers who see a few differences there. What I'd like to emphasize is this principle. Am I imposing my culture? Am I imposing my culture on the Bible, or am I letting the Bible inform me? When it comes to sexual ethics, you're single, you're celibate, you're married, you're faithful. Really simple, really hard. Why people feel the way they do in terms of orientation, really complicated. But when it comes to can a woman do this or this or this, apart from one or two roles in the church, there's no biblical restriction on anything that one of God's women can do. When I say apart from that, that's the debate that Christians have. I just choose not to be fractious or contentious because I really want to respect. I work with Orthodox, Catholic, Coptic, Protestant, Evangelical, 
you know, all kinds of groups who love Jesus and worship the Holy Trinity and love the Bible. Um, I would say this, aim for the most liberating understanding rooted in the scripture. And I think we'll, we'll make progress together. Yeah, and I love that. So I'll, I'll piggyback on it Please. to give, give, give you some freedom there. Um, here, there's neither Jew nor what? Help me out. Greek. Greek or Gentile. Gentile. It depends on. Yeah, slave nor male, but all are one. Right? At some point, the church needs to live that out. At some point, race is an issue. And we're actually going to have a discussion about that. Uh, Labor Day weekend, been working on this. And so I hope you come for that weekend. Don't go on vacation. Um, (laughs) Because it's going to be great. But we're going to have a discussion panel because that is dividing the church. And right now, the most segregated time in America is Sunday morning, and it breaks the heart of God. Yeah, it does. When somehow we do superiority based on your gender, it breaks the heart of God. Yep. There's a reason we are intentional about who gets on this stage, by the way, that it is shared and that it, you hear from male, you hear from female, you hear from different ethnicities. Because this is the people of God, and as it is uh, on earth, in heavens, may it be on earth. That's our prayer. Well, Revelation, the debated book, says this. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's what we want to see here. That all gifts of the body of Christ are presented. That every person is used in living in mission how God made you to be fully. There are no half or partial low, right? We're all full brothers and sisters in Christ, yes. fully equipped to yep. live in our calling. So that give you different. No, I, I, do you understand why I'm being careful? Is that I really want to honor the fact that people have some differences of opinion. At the same time, one of the reasons I'm here this morning is I knew what your heart is here. And I would say this to my sisters and my brothers, listen to God with others you trust and pursue the calling God gives you with full energy in the context of relationship and community. And don't put a false governor on it. And don't let society's gender roles or even old-fashioned church gender roles restrict you And sometimes humor helps us get to wisdom. I had a friend who was a missionary in Belgium, and he happened to have a very high-pitched tenor voice, and he happened to like flower arranging. Guess what people thought of him? Stereotype. High-pitched voice, arranges flowers. Um, His two kids and his wife were very happy. Do you see what I'm getting at? What 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 if we actually just received everybody as the gift that they are? And I'll finish with this, and then Ryan will probably ask me one more question. Would you please read Genesis 1 again? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them and called them Adam. 
He, we're made in the image of God. We're given work to do. We do that work as a male or a female. You know what's really liberating about being in the body of Christ? I have a lot of brothers and sisters, right? I have one spouse, but I've got a lot of sisters and brothers. But getting that order straight is so important because what some people do is they say, oh, yeah, the image of God is great, male and female, and then there's different work to do because you're male or female. And that's not the biblical order. Made in the image of God, given work to do to care for the world, and we do that work as a man or a woman. If you're my sister, you're my brother, and you find out God's work to do, do it with all of your heart. You will do it as a man or a woman, and that's a wonderful gift to the world. But you do it as an image-bearing worker before God. That just helps me liberate everyone. That's great. Would you stand with us as we close? And I would ask you just to simply let's pray. pray a benediction over us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Gracious and loving Lord, we thank you for your embrace of us today. While we were asleep, you were not, and you think thoughts toward us that outnumber the sands of the sea. Your plans for us are good to give us a future and a hope. And so today, children of God, sisters and brothers, those anointed by the Spirit and filled with his grace, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit empower you, equip you, and release you for the glory of God and the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.